I completely checked out. And the space that I was in at the time was that I was going to focus on music, use the rest of my remaining funds in retirement. And if something didn't break by the time I ran out of money, then I was going to check out. And by check out, I meant end my life. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm Al Levin, your host. Tonight on the show, we have Michael Nana. Michael has a PhD in research and statistics. He's a former university professor and a former police officer, and he is also a singer and songwriter. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, really, glad to be here. Really excited to have you here. I know looking uh, at your bio and uh, reading some of your blogs and so forth, it sounds like you have actually had what you would describe pretty much a lifelong battle with anxiety and depression. Yeah, I wouldn't say like. I'd say absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and can yeah, you, can you put a, a t- looking back in hindsight? I mean, are you talking like from age five even? Which Yeah, I don't know you know, you're... really from my earliest memories, I think I was always kind of brooding. Um, you know, my family would pointed out and even this today even today they you know say stuff like oh you always thought too much you know so I was very uh used to ruminate a lot um but around fifth grade um is when I started having a lot of anxiety disorder related issues like phobias and you know just classic kind of phobias and give some examples um yeah I mean you know, at one point I was afraid that, you know, when I was out riding my bike along in the neighborhood that it was suddenly going to change, that I wouldn't be able to find my way back home. Um, I had a, a horrible fear of throwing up, so I wouldn't, you know, I would avoid eating stuff past a certain hour at times. Um, you know, a lot of OCD things. I got into the, you know, flicking the light switch on and all that kind of stuff and the ruminating thoughts and intrusive thoughts. When you say flicking a light switch on, you mean? Yeah, you know, like, you know, flicking on five times. If I flick it on five times, it off. You know, the classic obsessive compulsive kind of stuff. Right. Now, I didn't know it was classic back then. I mean, to me, I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And it was through a lifelong kind of personal search that I kind of, you know, led me on this path of self-discovery. But it sounds like, at least in hindsight, you definitely see it. But even at the time, did you realize that it wasn't, uh, wasn't typical? Um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say because, you know, I was a young kid and it was my first time through life. Right. right. And I, I don't, didn't really have any other frame of, you know, any frame of reference. No one was speaking about it back in those days. This was in the, you know, not to date myself, but in the seventies. Right, right. So, you know, the only thing that was ever discussed back then was, you know, hyperactivity, yep. uh, attention deficit. I, I mean, if it was listed as attention deficit back then, it was more like hyperactive, hyperactivity disorder. Um, you know, and they, I had went through that whole, you know, pathway with parents and put me on medications and then took me off cause it turned me into a zombie. So there was, there was always something, but I didn't know what it was. Medication, you know? I mean, they, they put you on for ADHD. 
Yeah, uh, the Ritalin, they tried okay. it for a brief period of time, and then that was it. There was I wasn't on any medications until well into my, well, really, uh, 20s. Okay. So what else was school like then? So you were, you mentioned this was fifth grade, so like middle school times, going into middle school, was, was school a challenge for you? Yeah, I mean, socially it was very much, you know, I was um, very short because I hadn't grown yet. Uh, I was very skinny. And I was precocious. So, you know, and then having that sort of anxiety disorder personality, very hypersensitive personality, I mean, it made me a prime target for for bullying and, you know, just a lot of social awkwardness. I never really felt that I fit in, was, was you know, terrified of, you know, approaching a girl or anything like that. And, and, uh, so yeah, it, it was, I wouldn't say that I had an ideal childhood. It was very challenging and very difficult at times. And even looking back and, you know, retrospectively that, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of things that were very difficult, but, um, unfortunately no one was talking about that stuff back then. And it was just my own sort of self-discovery over the up and coming years where things started to unfold as I started looking at medical books and kind of sensing something wasn't right, you know? Right, right. And yeah. You mentioned bullying when, when you were getting bullied, was that some serious stuff or was that just here and there? Um, how intense <laughs> you know, was it? it? It was, it was kind of, I mean, it was intense. I don't think any bullying is ever not intense because it, it's always traumatic, you yeah, know? Absolutely. Um, certainly I had you know, people that wanted to fight and that whole, like, we're going to fight after school and then I'd be terrified all day and I'd have to like try to get home and sneak out and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't, wasn't like daily. And even among, you know, you know, amongst friends that, you know, when you're with, uh, sometimes, you know, when you're with one person one-on-one, -on -one, everything's cool. And then you bring another person in or another two people in, it changes the social dynamic. And I was often the then target of, you know, my, <laughs> my, you know, supposed friends, you know, so it was, it created a lot of, of issues and a lot of dynamics, um, that were, were challenging. And I think, you know, the only thing that really saved me was that, you know, a certain amount of kind of baseline intelligence and while not a functional environment, family environment, it was at the time an intact family unit. And I had close, I did have friends and, and different people. So there was a, a social support network that a lot of people don't have. Right. Did you have siblings at home? Yeah, one younger brother. Okay. And you made it sound like it was not completely stable at home? Well, my, you know, my parents got divorced when I was 18. So, you know, when I was growing up, I, I'm sure it wasn't the most uh, awesome, loving environment that you know, many people have. But it was, it was at least a, a nuclear family unit. I mean, right. I'm sure there was lots of stuff going on. My parents didn't, like, fight, you know, uh, out in the open or anything like that. So it was just sort of normal. It was kind of like a normal 70s kid upbringing for the most part. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, distance parents and they have their own kind of issues and everything. But, it, you know, it wasn't like I was worrying about where I was going to eat next and things like that. Right. Right. Would you ever share with your folks what was going on with school with the difficulties and the bullying? Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to them, uh, but, you know, even up until recently, you know, I, I still have an ongoing relationship with my, my father. My, my mom passed away uh, 10 years ago. Um, and it's still an education process because even after all this time and all the, the things that I've gone through and the struggles with this and struggles with that, that 
they still just were not getting it. Like family, like my brother, speaking of my brother and my father, you know, I've, I've, my relationship with both of them has improved significantly, I'd say, over the last two years because after I kind of, you know, had a, a major downslide and a lot of uh, chronic life stressors that were kind of taking root, um, I started opening up more and more about things that I thought people already knew about, really. Right. And it turns out that they just didn't. Wow. <laughs> wow. So high school, pretty similar to middle school experience? Yeah. Yeah. It was all very similar until college. Uh Um, you know, it really wasn't, I didn't really thrive. Um, you know, I was, I was one of those chronic underachievers all through school up until college. Right. You know, I, I did the bare minimum to get by and uh, evidently I had, again, some baseline level of intelligence that allowed me to navigate through that without doing much, Right. you know, much work and whether that was, you know, because of me or just, the system back then, I, you know, I got through and it wasn't until college that I really took ownership of my education. Right. So take us back there. Where, where were you going to college? So I went to uh, Wayne State University, which is in Detroit, Michigan. And I started out in um, psychology as undergrad. Well, I, I got my undergraduate in psychology. And, and like a lot of people who went in psychology, my initial foray into psychology was trying to figure out myself. Right. And you, you are not the first interviewee who said that. No, of course yeah. not. And that's why people, you know, a lot of people in psychology are very, you know, hypersensitive. And, you know, we, we have, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Um, but I always use a, you know, a metaphor that the best, you know, neurosurgeon in the world can't operate on him or herself. So, right. you know, <laughs> at really some point, point, yeah, at some point everyone has to go under the, and, and relinquish, con, you know, control and, and rely on others to help them. So studying as an undergrad in psychology, were you able to kind of get a better grasp of what was going on with you at that point throughout undergrad? Yeah, uh, you know, and it's in the larger context, it's very interesting because it's allows it's allowed me to kind of contextualize depression and anxiety and, you know, all this spectrum of, you know, mood disorders um, that it really is kind of like an energy that, that fluctuates and pulsates and ebbs and flows. And, you know, if you cut off one part of the balloon, it, it expands another part. For example, you know, as I continue my education and learned about phobias and things, I started challenging myself and I was able to reason my way out of, um, phobias and a lot of those. Yeah. I mean, so I, I was able to do that and I thought, wow, that's great. That's such a testament to my intellectual prowess, right? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> um, when that happened, when I finally talked to myself, reasoned my way out of um, phobias, then I started having panic attacks. And I didn't, you know, when I first, like many people, the first panic attack I had sent me to the hospital. The first couple sent me to the hospital. I didn't, you what know. Did, you, were you in college, uh, undergrad for your first panic attack? Yeah, I was in uh, undergraduate. Can you, uh, first I want to say, I mean, I'm thinking back, like undergrad, you're still a fairly young guy trying to kind of analyze and diagnose yourself throughout your studies. That's And it's pretty yeah. cool what you were able to do. Um, but take us through that first panic attack. Um, yeah, it was, in, um, it was in a movie theater, which I'm sure is also not terribly uncommon. And, you know, almost instantly there was this just – intense feeling of depersonalization, which, you know, if you're not familiar with that, it kind of like is 
I, I don't want to say an out of body out of body experience because to me I associate something positive with that. <laughs> There's nothing positive about feeling depersonalized. It's just kind of like a loss of self and loss of control. And you know, heart rate increased. Um, Were you with somebody? Yeah, I was with a bunch of people seeing a movie, and I just kind of I didn't let anyone know. I just kind of excused myself to go to the bathroom, as it were, and. I think, you know, I think I let one person know, I let one friend know who was a nurse and, but you know, again, he was just a nursing student and it's not like, oh yeah, you're having a panic attack, you know, you know, it ultimately ended up you know, with me going to hospital a couple times or, you know, seeing. Even from it, there, from that movie theater incident? Not from there. I mean, I was able to calm down and was kind of freaked out, but then that was my first panic attack, but then panic disordered. Now I start anticipating <laughs> and having, having a ton of anxiety about having, when's the next one going to come. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I mean, right. it really is just a classic textbook flow of, you know, how panic attacks unfold and what was going you know, through your head at the theater. I mean, did, did you have any idea what was going on or did you think you were having a heart attack or thought I was having a heart attack? I thought I was going to die. I mean, just cause you, you know, and the thing is having, a first panic attack. Now I'd had all kinds of anxiety issues right, right prior to that, but I had never had a full blown panic attack. And, uh, it, I, I really didn't know what it was. I just thought, you know, I'm going to die and oh my God, this is it. Can and, you speak a little more about the symptoms of what was happening when you were in the bathroom? Just for those of us who have never experienced a panic attack, you know, we hear about them, you hear the racing heart, but I mean, are you in pain? Like what's, what's going on? No, there's, there's no, there's no pain, um, other than psychic pain. Um, it's just very physically uncomfortable. You know, my heart was racing. Um, I had, a a bit of syncope, which is kind of like lightheadedness, you know, where you feel like you're going to faint. So, you know, I, I have to sit down and put my head between my knees. You know, I knew enough to do that to get blood flowing back in so that I didn't pass out. And of course, you know, just this intense fear of terror of, of losing control and losing your life, I guess, right, you know, or right. just kind of completely losing it. So it's, it's like a terrifying, it's just like, you know, picture a lion jumping out at you and chasing you. That's pretty much what it feels like. Right. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I can't breathe. Am I going to be able to get out of here? Um, you know, I'm not getting enough oxygen in. I'm choking. Wait, I'm not choking because I'm breathing. But you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, just, and then compounded by the fact that you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, no, no idea. No idea. Which now, you know, I, I had enough, worse. I had enough background to know that, okay, afterwards when I kind of did the postmortem on myself was, okay, I, maybe that was a panic attack, but then it was quickly dismissed because I started going to the doctor and having this checked out and that checked out and that checked out and that checked out. And it wasn't until that I ended up going to actually my first psychiatrist when I was prescribed uh, Clonopin for the first, or no, actually it was Xanax back then. This was 1990. I think. What was and it that made you decide to go to the psychiatrist? Because at this, by this point, I had been having multiple panic attacks. Um, the anxiety was increasing to where it was more steady state. Um, and, and did you go to a family doctor or a psychologist before you went straight to the psychiatrist? Yeah, I went to. I've been going to psychi or psychologists for a long time. I went when I was in high school, um, and you know, I engaged with them as, as much as I could, given what I knew back then, you were know, you, were you given a diagnosis way back then? 
Now, I wasn't given my first diagnosis until I was actually in graduate school. Okay. And I was working on my master's at the time, and which is when I went to see the first psychiatrist right. that prescribed the Xanax. And I was referred to that person by the psychologist that I was going to at the time. Gotcha. So I've always been very introspective. You know, I've, I've done long bouts of psychotherapy over my lifetime. So, you know, when I say that... I've been able to work through a lot of this stuff. It wasn't just me. It was also me going to, you know, attend, you know, psychotherapy on a regular basis and was committed to it for years and years, right. you know. So I didn't realize until now that actually back in high school you had seen a psychologist. Was that at your own urging of your parents or who brought brought you? Yeah, that was parents. That okay. was the urging of the parents. So oh, that cool. wasn't even Yeah, it wasn't that even Because that even seems a little unusual. I've interviewed many guys who are about your age, which is similar to my age, mm -hmm. who say, you know, I had loving, dearly loving parents, but they didn't know what to do, you know, and nobody was really talking psych stuff at that point. So nobody even thought about a psychologist. They just did the best they could to love me and support me. Yeah. You know, and to their own admission, you know, they could have done things a lot better, but, um, well, I think it's and, great that they got you to see a psychologist while you were in high school. Yeah. And I was going to say, though, that even though they they have, you know, there's kind of that acknowledgement that, yeah, we could have done things better. There's also an acknowledgement on my part that they did the best they could with what they had at the time, you know, right, right. and that the current social dynamics, you know, you can't use today's lens and put it back in the 1970s and say, well, why weren't you doing this? Yeah, exactly. exactly. They didn't, have, didn't even have the language for it. Right. You know, on a social level back then. Yeah. So you end up at the psychiatrist and uh talk meds and a diagnosis? Well, it was kind of a, a pseudo diagnosis, I say, because it wasn't complete yet. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, this is only halfway of my, my journey with depression and anxiety. But I was given a prescription for Xanax. And, and you know, I was always very anti-medication. I, you know, I've never had an addictive personality, but I just was very paranoid of it. So I was very judicious in my use of it. But it was Judicious I mean, meaning, yeah. like, judicious not taking meaning that I was the amount you were yeah, supposed to, or no, were you I was, following I was doctor's only directions? taking what I was supposed to. In okay. fact, trying to take it less okay. than I was supposed to. Like, you know, it was it was prescribed for, you know, taking it once a day, but I would only take you know a half as needed when I was having an acute anxiety. You know, when my anxiety was kind of ramped up, because uh, as I was uh, what I was going to say earlier is that when I was you know, having the panic attacks, once I sort of got a handle on the panic attacks in that I knew what they were and that I wasn't going to die and that I could at least reason my way out of them a little bit more and talk myself through them uh -huh. um, through breathing and different techniques, it started trans – it just kind of morphed into steady state anxiety. Right, right. So as a guy who uh, was studying psych as an undergrad, seems really uh, intelligent about this stuff, has a PhD, would you uh, say – Scaling back on your meds and taking them when needed uh, for a psychotic med is something you would recommend? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah, no. I just wanted to clarify I, I, that. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm just sharing my personal experience, and the state I was in back then was, you know, I, I don't want to take I'm, any medications, yeah, you know? Yeah, no, I get it. Completely get it, especially being nervous about the meds and the, the response to meds. Yeah. And I was being a little facetious, like, man, you, you get these doctor's orders, don't don't fumble around with them and, and make do. Yeah, and, you know, we talk about my current situation. I mean, I take medication right now, and, you know, I see a psychiatrist, and, you know, I'm fully <laughs> just, you know, completed a couple months ago a three-week-long group 
therapy program. Oh, awesome. Wow, so, I mean, yeah, this is just part of, this is just, this is, again, this journey? is, I'm thinking, yeah, this is like 95 right now, mid nineties, yeah. mid to late nineties. And 90s. I get it. A lot of people who take yeah. meds are fearful of them. Right. And, and I, I was, always, I fought it. Yeah. Um, fought it for a long time. Yeah. And I talk about, you know, I just think it is a very difficult decision, right. To take medicine like that for your mind. And whenever I share, you know, that I'm taking a medicine or in my blogs and so forth, I just ask people to, to not judge others for the decisions they make. If you're one who doesn't take medicines and you don't believe in them, that's great. But don't go and judge somebody who takes them. And same with yeah. if you take them and somebody says, you know what, I'm not for them, then that's their choice, too. Yeah, to me, I'm very pragmatic. I'm very outcome driven. So whatever works. Yeah, exactly. And as long as you're not hurting anyone else and you're communicating with people yeah. um, and they know, you know, you have a support network that, that can help you and kind of provide guidance to you if you feel like you're kind of slipping a little bit, you know, uh, and to trust in them is is also a major component. Oh, you know, absolutely. So it's, you know, it's, it's the medication, it's the social aspects, and it's the interpersonal and, Oh, it's you a know, lot of pieces. So, so you go to your first psychiatric appointment, you walk out of there with Xanax, you said, yeah. And that, um, is for the depression and anxiety. No, cause you know, back then I wasn't even, the depression wasn't really even on the radar because it it was completely manifesting uh, as anxiety disorders and on the, as, and the anxiety end of the spectrum, I hadn't had a full on depressive episode yet. But you yeah. <laughs> had had the the panic as well, and was that supposed to help mitigate the panic symptoms? Yeah, as well? exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. So Xanax is an anxiolytic, which is an anti-anxiety medication, okay. and it's one of many like clonopin, and there's I mean there's all kinds of that are on the market now, but Xanax yeah. is one of the most uh, common ones that, and and one of the most common medications that people have uh, experience with. Okay. Psychiatric and, medication. Right. And did he literally say so? You have anxiety disorder and panic disorder or did he just worry about more treating yeah symptoms? it was listed you know back then it's all well not just back then it's all what the dsm-4 yeah or dsm-5 classification is and right. uh you know i'd have to go back to records but i think it was i was diagnosed as uh anxiety disorder with panic something right. like that whatever the whatever the vernacular was back then yeah back then right and so after that, you mentioned how you were taking the meds for the most part, but sometimes you'd back off if, if you were feeling all right. And how long did you go on like that? And did everything ease up on you anxiety-wise and panic disorder-wise? No, I don't think anything eased up. I think I, you know, back then, uh, you know, I was in a space, very social space. So I was going out a lot and partying and was with friends and was masking it with other things. And just use the Xanax back then as an adjunct to deal with anxiety when it was really spiking. Um, because, you know, the problem with anxiety is it's not just physical symptoms. It's also cognitive symptoms. You know, there are things that I can do quite easily when I'm in a relaxed state. And then when I'm in an anxious state, it's like I never even learned them. Right. Um, right. It, it, can, it can just destroy memory. and Or I should say it can destroy access <laughs> to memory you know, being in like that elevated state, you know, that's the whole thing with like test anxiety. It's very real. I mean, people, you know, I mean, a lot of people get nervous. I mean, everyone, it's, it's, it's similar to that, except it's when there's no reason for it. You know, you could be laying on your bed and like, oh my God, I'm freaking out right now and having major panic. And why? I don't know. 
Right. There's no, no one's chasing me or trying to kill me right now, you know? Right. And this was, you said this was through grad school? Yeah, so this went on pretty much through graduate school and beyond. And then that all kind of changed when I had my first uh, major um, depressive episode. Were you out of school at that point? Or? Yeah, so I was out of school. I w- had been working. I finished my PhD. And so this was in, what, 98. And I'd been working for a couple years. And it happened in 2001, actually. What type of job were you working? It was a research job. I was working for an um, a con- educational consulting company out in Arizona. And take us through the depression. Was it one that kind of crept up on you little by little and symptoms starting to come through? or whatever? Yeah, you know, looking, looking back, um, I think there's lots of flares that start going off. But seeing as I had never really had a full-blown major depressive episode before, I really wasn't familiar with the flares because, you know, my whole psychiatric past prior to that was anxiety. It was all focused on the anxiety it was all focused on an elevation, right? And trying to, to calm myself down, you know, trying to focus and meditate or take medications or whatever. It was all, it was all like sort of above the surface. It wasn't the below the, <laughs> what I call the below the surface of depression. Right. And, you know, there were a lot of things I was struggling with and there certainly was a, a watershed moment, but the watershed moment was inconsequential, right? It was just one thing out of, a million others that had been building up and building up. And then when that moment happened, it's like I could feel these dark clouds rolling in and, and was helpless to stop them. What were some of the things going on in your life at the time? You know, on the outside, everything was fine and everything should have been fine, which is another, and I try not to use the word should. (laughs) I, I try to avoid using that word all the time. But just objectively where I was at, there wasn't anything external which which should have been causing the amount of problems and the amount of consternation that I was having because it's chemical, right? It's it's biochemical. There, Yeah, there are social stressors and everything, but you know, the social stressors and the space I was in and what I had at my disposal was not related to what happened at all so at the the same time i'm sorry to interrupt you but at the same time you did mention things were kind of building so it sounded like there was one stressor on top of another stressor on top of another stressor but they were at the time they were all internal stressors they were they were um you know outputs of the underlying depression they were outputs of the underlying anxiety gotcha so there wasn't anything like you know i wasn't being attacked from the outside i wasn't having major financial issues i wasn't having which you know i couldn't say some years later but uh even up till recently and the uh, job the was time, going all right yeah i mean there were it was there were issues but they, it was normal right it was normal job stuff and right. the problem was you know, what was going on in my brain and it was becoming further and further detached from the immediacy of my real life, I guess. What kind of symptoms were you experiencing? Um, you know, a lot of the classic, just, you know, depressed mood. Uh, I was having a hard time concentrating. I was having horrible insomnia and then I tried to, you know, alleviate that somewhat with, you know, again, being very judicious in my use of, of Xanax, which I still had a prescription for at the time, which I think by that time it had been changed to Clonopin just because it's 
a little slower releasing. Um, but they're still, they're both anxiolytic medications. They have the same net effect. And I was drinking a lot, you know, because I was trying to deal with the anxiety that was building. You know, I, I, I look at it now in hindsight of these different instances that I've had that, you know, anxiety builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And at some point it hits a breaking point and that's where things collapse and it turns into a depression, right. you know, it's a major depression. And it was just that kind of thing. Like internally, I was just ramping up and ramping up and was just, you know, seeing all the problems of the world and all the problems in myself and all the problems are here. And it just this isn't going to change and that's not going to change and what's going to happen here and just obsessiveness and worry and just, it was just building internally to where my brain just finally said, okay, I'm done. Right. How bad was the insomnia? It was bad for a period of time. How, how uh, much sleep were you getting? Not much. A couple hours a night and, um, you know, I of course was going out more than I should be. And I mean, there was a period of time where looking back now, I'm like, good God, how was I even functioning? Because I was getting so little sleep, and even when I was sleeping, it was always, you know, it had to be induced by, you know, clonopin, Xanax, right. clonopin, and booze. And how much were you drinking? Uh, I mean, compared to to some, not a lot. And I, you know, I've I've never, it's never really been my my thing. I've gone through periods that I've drank, but you know, I was more than I should. Uh-huh. I'll say that definitely more than I should. Right. But it wasn't the drinking, it was me trying to, you know, and there's a lot of comorbidities where you have, you know, uh, addictive issues, underlying addictive issues and anxiety. And, you know, looking back now and even, you know, my use of it now, because I'll still drink sometimes. It, it, When I do drink more, it tends to be when I'm just trying to squash some of the extra anxiety that's poking its head out. Mm-hmm. So I was certainly drinking more than I should have been. That's right. for sure. And, and looking back now, I shouldn't have been drinking at all. I should have been on medication and, and, uh, but again, should have, could have, would have, but hindsight is, <laughs> is one thing, right? Yeah. And it's also important to keep it in perspective. I mean, you were sick at the time, right? And that's one of the challenges I think of having a depressive episode like that. You, your cognition is impacted, your thought process, yeah. your memory, everything. So to be able to make sense and to know wow, I really need to get to the doctor and get my medication really set is tough to realize in itself. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is that I was very high functioning. So, you know, unless you were very close to me and even if you weren't, even if you were very close to me, you may not have even known, you know, come to find out that you would never know. Right. Uh, I was able to turn it on and turn it off and could be social and say the right things. But it was, you know, all of it was becoming more and more less natural. And it was this pressure was building up, you know. But looking at me and seeing me out and about or not talking with me, you would never know what was going on inside my head. Right. And then just how bad did it get? Um, bad enough where I had to take a leave of absence for work, from work, um, and I was seeing a psychologist at the time. At the time, and you know the 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 word hospitalization did come up, but I avoided that and ended up doing a two week uh, group outpatient. And this is when I was living in Phoenix, Arizona, and that's when I started taking uh, medications and started doing the medication dance, which is a whole other issue. <laughs> How describe the two week outpatient. Was that every day? How many hours? Yeah. So it was every day. Um, it was like eight to five Monday through Friday for actually a little over two weeks. And during, um, 
an outpatient, like an intensive outpatient program. It's a very um, multidisciplinary approach for acute, you know, people that are in kind of acute state. So you'll have, you'll be in group therapy all day, but you'll be pulled in and out to meet with the psychiatrist. And, you know, you'll, there you'll talk about meds, you're pulled out um, by a social worker or a counselor, you have individual counseling and therapy during the week. And then there's, you know, the medication monitoring. And then of course, the group work that happens where, you know, you're in a group of people. How big of a group? Um, it would vary from, from five up to 20, depending on the day, depending on which groups, any subgroups were meeting or who was being pulled out for blood work or, you know, medical review or, uh, meeting with the psychiatrist or in individual counseling. So it fluctuated. It was very dynamic. Did you feel like you benefited from it? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And in fact, I just completed another three week long one back in, um, April of this year just okay. because of some things that have, you know, kind of, kind of found myself in a similar situation only 20 years later right, right. <laughs> and everything that I hadn't dealt with back then was, you know, back to rear its head. Yeah. So it sounds pretty darn similar to, uh, what I went through here in the twin cities in, uh, St. Paul, which we refer here to partial hospitalization program. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. what you described as intensive outpatient. So after that, what was it like going through different meds changes while you were there and, and how did that pan out? Oh man, the medication dance is a nightmare. Um, you know, the first medication I tried and you know, I forgive me for missing some little things, but, um, I did try Paxil or Paxil about seven months prior to going through this initial group program that was prescribed by my, just my regular, um, physician. And I had a horrible panic attack, woke me up in the middle of the night, thought I was going to die. EMS were out. So, you know, I was very suspicious of SSRIs and medications because my first experience with one was horrible. And then, you know, I, over the next several years, I was on a multitude of them switching back and forth because, you know, some of them have side effects, which are tolerable. Some of them have side effects, which are benign, but very problematic. Uh, and and like, throughout this, you were still in the same field doing research. Yeah. So I was still doing research. I actually ended up, uh, leaving that job. Um, I did take a severance and left subsequent to, I went back for a little while after, you know, I, was discharged from group and I decided to go back and do some postdoctoral work myself at Arizona State University and I did that and taught at ASU for a couple of years while I was kind of going through this medication um roller coaster. Yeah, and was that job uh pretty manageable for you at the time or was that a, an added stressor on you? No, see those kinds of jobs are great because the time was, you know, outside of having to be at a certain place for brief periods of time, like you have to teach between this time and that time, or you have a class between this time and that time, or if you have a meeting between this time and that time, your time is pretty much your own. So, you know, I was playing a lot of music then. I was playing out one to two nights a week, solo acoustic, and then with another guy, a partner that I had for a while, uh, who I was playing music out with. And so I was in a very good space. I was doing like I wasn't as financially secure as I was. That certainly put a, a stressor on things. But, you know, I had a lot of I was learning. I was doing things that I enjoyed doing. I was playing music. I was learning. So it was a good uh, it was a good overall space. Right. But the medications were 
definitely, you know, I mean, it, it's definitely a process. Yeah. And did you ever, you mentioned that was going on for about two and a half years? Yeah. So I eventually, um, so in this time period, this intervening time period, I ended up moving back to Michigan, which is where I'm at now, um, around 06. And by that time I had settled on Zoloft because it had the least amount of side effects for the most bang for the buck in that I no longer felt that I had any depressive symptoms, but it didn't do anything for my anxiety. So I still had to take clonopin and, and was always searching for the next best thing in dealing with the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And working with a psychiatrist back in Detroit? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And job-wise? So job-wise, things were good for a while. Um, and ended up the job that I ended up coming back to take, uh, they ended up doing a reorganization. So I got a good severance and a good letter of recommendation. And that's when I decided, Hey, you know what? I want to do something completely different with my life. And that's, I went to the police Academy and became a police officer. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? I was, oh gosh, uh, late thirties. And what was the draw for you to become a police officer? Um, I had always been interested in it. And then, it was kind of like a parallel thing that I was always interested in, in addition to, you know, music, which music has always been in my life. So that's like a parallel with everything that we're talking about here. Uh, but with the academic kind of professional life, what do you want to be in your grow up kind of conversations? Um, it was always something that I was very interested in doing. And, I, you know, depending on how deep you want to get <laughs> in this one podcast, I mean, I have many theories as to why that is. But suffice it to say that I wasn't feeling what I was doing at the time. I wasn't terribly happy. And I'm someone that has always considered myself to put my money where my mouth was. And instead of just, you know, bitching about what I was doing and not being happy, I decided to switch careers. Wow. Cool. Were you concerned at all about the fact that being a cop could be such a stressful situation and bring you into situations where your anxiety could spike? You might even be worried about panic. Such a counterintuitive answer, and this is, you know, one thing that I talk about on a blog post is that it was actually a great space for me. Now, things went south for a variety of reasons, and I'm no longer working as a police officer now. That's a whole other (laughs) discussion, right? But it was a great job for me because, you know, a lot of the attributes of anxiety are needed as a police officer, right? Hypervigilance, aware of one's surroundings, you know, being hypersensitive to one's surroundings and the energy around you, you know, these kind of esoteric things you don't talk about in, in police departments and in, in those ways. But, um, and then you have power, you have control, you have the ability to affect change. Uh, you're responding to a situation that requires an elevated state of being, right? I mean, a lot of the time you're bored and you're just driving around, but then you're, you know, you're just kind of doing your own thing. And as long as you're meeting the, the, you know, any mandates that the, the department has, you know, your time is kind of your own and you respond to calls for service. And then when you have to jump into action, you, you there's no time to think. It's so, a very it's a very Zen space to be in. <laughs> I never think of that as a Zen space yeah. when you get a call. But, you know, I could see where you're talking about heightened, elevated sense of things through your anxiety and stuff. But I guess it would also make me wonder if it could throw you into such a heightened emotional state and get you almost like paranoid and and turn a little dangerous while you have a weapon on you. Um, I guess that's my thought process when I hear your history of anxiety and panic. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's very counterintuitive. It's very counterintuitive. Um, but you weren't concerned about that going into it? No, I wasn't concerned because I trained. You know, I mean, right. you don't go into it blind. You know, I had Good done point. a lot of tactical training even before I went in both, you know, got into martial arts and started doing a lot of different tactical handgun uh, firearm training because it was a very zen activity, you know, yeah. especially for someone that had anxiety, you know, and for someone who's prone to rumination, there's also a very pragmatic part of me that's like, okay, guess what? There's no time to be messing around or thinking about some silly thing when you, when you have a firearm in your hand, right, right? right? You have to be in the moment. You have to be paying attention to what you're doing and you have to train. These are, these are skills. And the thing about high stress situations is that you absolutely default to your training in, in high stress situations because, uh, yeah, you can have auditory exclusion and you lose, like you have this tunnel vision, you know, auditory exclusion is where you stop hearing things. Uh, when you have a heightened stress tunnel vision, uh, shallow breathing, all those things happen in high stress situations and you lose fine motor skills, right, you know, things right. that you need to do. So it really does fall on your training. So having, you know, all that training in my background, you know, I, I really wasn't, it was a very, it was a defined space. I had a defined role, which eliminated a lot of the social anxiety because, and again, these are very counterintuitive answers, right? And this is just my personal experience. But, you know, when you show, when I show up to a place as Michael Nana, I bring with me all the anxieties and apprehensions and fears, social fears and anxieties, you know, that I always bring with me. But when I was working as a police officer, when I showed up to a place and I was in uniform, I was no longer Michael Nana. I was just simply the police. Right. 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 So it's, it's a, in much like being a professor or being a musician. I tell people these are very three things that I'm comfortable doing. I'm comfortable performing in front of people. Sure. I get nervous and, and have all the normal stuff on top of the anxiety stuff, but, uh, getting up in front of a classroom, which a lot of people are terrified of, not a problem for me. And being a police officer and the three thing, uh, the one thing that all three of those things have in common are control. I'm in control. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I set the tone, I set the, the, the discourse. There's no pressure other than whatever I know I'm going to put on myself. So, do you really um, and, get to set the tone as the police officer? I mean, if you're showing up well, to a, a, a highly intense domestic abuse situation and you're walking into the middle of that. No, no, of course not. But I mean, just like sort of that standing kind of space, like when you walk into a classroom and you're the professor, yeah. you are setting the tone, right? right. Gen generally speaking, when you're driving around or you're interacting yeah. with the public, you're kind of setting the tone given the role that you're in. Right. Um, if I'm performing then, you know, I, I'm setting the tone with how much I'm talking or engaging yeah. with people that are there watching me. And now do things go wrong and do things break? Do things happen that set you into a whole other direction? Absolutely. But right. the, the, the one commonality is just that you're kind of in control, right? Yeah. You're, you're yeah. not in a space where you're walking in, like not knowing what's going to happen or what's going on. Now, was this in Detroit? Yeah, this was in, it wasn't in the city of Detroit, but it was a, a suburb of two, I worked for two departments, two suburbs of Detroit. Okay, which, and so, which will be left on. <laughs> okay, yeah, no problem. Yeah, we'll make sense. Um, uh, were they uh, a lot of diversity in there, or were they? I mean, like I think of where I'm at, the Twin Cities. The you know the urban cop life is probably quite different than out in the first, second ring suburbs, especially some of the wealthier suburbs. 
Yeah, one one uh, department I worked for was very blue collar and was very diverse uh, and, and it bordered just north of Detroit. And there were some rough areas. And then the other department that I worked in was more one of those ring cities where, you know, more wealthy and a different type of policing. Uh-huh. And did I know you talked about being in control and so forth um, and the anxiety, how it actually could be helpful. Were there times where where it was just an outrageous amount of stress due to a particular call? You know what? I, in, in, again, this is my experience. It, it wasn't the, the the most stressful thing that I dealt with as a police officer for me was boredom and having to wear a vest when it was hot and humid out in the summer. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I love how you kind of described it and how there was a lot of sitting around. When I was in college, I actually, for a law class, I went uh, on a police ride along and yeah. I was just expecting, you know, all of these great calls to go on and all these dangerous situations. And even as a ride along, this cop like sat in a parking lot for at least an hour watching cars drive by until like one dude drove by without his headlights and we got to go give him a ticket. And I was like, wow, there really are some downtimes in this. Oh, job yeah, as well. lots. It's like 95 percent boredom and then 5 percent sheer terror. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. How long were you a cop? Uh, in total, about 10 years. Okay. Oh, that's a pretty long time. And what was the culmination of being a police officer? Well, it didn't go. I ended up having uh, back surgery uh, about, well, it's been some time now, but I ended, I ended up in a lawsuit with my first employer. It was an FMLA lawsuit because I mentioned that I may have had a back surgery and that's a whole other issue. But anyway, that was kind of like the downslide and then I moved over into the smaller department and then about three years ago, I decided that, you know, I have all this education that I'm not using and, you know, my law enforcement career didn't go off in the trajectory that I was anticipating. And I decided to go back into academia, which is where I stayed for a couple of years until a couple of years ago. Okay. And what were you doing uh, academia wise? Uh, I went back, was working in an administrative position at a local university here. And then right when I was leaving there is when I had my second round of major depression and tell us about that one yeah so um i had uh not to be woe is me because i know everyone has a lot of issues but within a rather short period of time i had gone through a lot of stressors um i my mom passed away i you know lost uh this career that i'd worked hard to achieve i had a daughter with my then wife got divorced <laughs> from said wife, um, lost another job, went through a lot of financial hardship and you know, all this happened within short, within a five year span of time. Wow. That, so just, that is a lot. It was. And I, you know, I, I not so jokingly joked that, you know, if you go down the life stressor index, I mean, I checked off pretty much every box right. within the last, you know, five to seven years. So it's been a very, very tumultuous period, which, you know, in no small way has led to me being right here with you. Right. Right. <laughs> so what uh, was your second bout of major depression really similar to the first bout as far as symptoms <clears throat> and everything that was going on with you? Yeah. So it was, it was a little different. So I was working at, at this university and things, uh, you know, we just didn't work out, just didn't get along with some of the people there and without any notice, however, I was uh, let go. 
and I was sitting in the room and when I found this news out, because this was me going back into this world after having been a cop and, and doing all these other things, kind of like, you know, this area is familiar. I have a young daughter. I need to kind of get my crap together yeah. <laughs> kind of space, you know. And you were there for two and a half years at this point? No, I was just there for a year. Oh, just I'm over sorry. A year. Okay. And, uh, and this was two years ago when this happened now. It was, it was May 24th, 2017. Okay. And I just felt all the life drained from my body. I mean, somebody it, walked in and just shared this news with the other. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was a, a meeting and then the meeting wasn't the meeting that was supposed to be. The meeting was, we're going to let you go. Thanks. You know, wow. have a good life kind of thing. And I just, just was numb then for an extended period of time. And, uh, you know, went through, a lot more financial loss. And this is at the, around the same time where I finally decided, you know what, I, forget all this other stuff. I'm just going to focus on music right now. And, you know, I did put out an album. I, I set up uh, a small S Corp, which I'm still working to develop and have written. I've grown as a, a vocalist, as a singer, songwriter and a guitarist. Uh, so there's been a lot of positive things that have changed and evolved from this 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 cataclysmic kind of life implosion, as I like to call it. Right. Because <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, and I'm still in the, the rebuilding period. I mean, I'm in a complete rebuild, kind of starting from scratch after all that experience and all that education, all that life. I've kind of circled all the way around and I'm in the same space that I was in before I even started college in some ways. Right. Yeah, which is a space you love. It is a space I love, but it's one that as an adult is fraught with all sort of insecurities and fears, you right. know, m money is one thing, you know, yeah. so trying to, to, to get gigs or sell music or sell songs and get more exposure. And I've never been one to self promote. So it's very painful for me to do that. Right. When you uh, found out that you were being let go from uh, your work in academia, did, did you work through that piece with the psychologist? Did you, and, and the divorce? No. I mean, you had a lot nope. going on. Nope. I completely checked out. And the space that I was in at the time, <clears throat> you know, I'm not in that space now, thankfully, was that I was going to focus on music, use the rest of my remaining funds in retirement. And at the time, I still had a home, still had a house. And if something didn't break, by the time I ran out of money, then I was going to check out. Check and by out. check out, I meant end my life. Right. I was in a very suicidal space. Okay. And and yet you didn't reach out for help at all? <clears throat> um, not directly. You know, I think my friends and family could sense that something was amiss because mm -hmm. I was extremely agitated. I was um, very combative. <clears throat> just intellectually combative and politically combative. Without uh, a job, were you staying at home? Were you getting out of bed? I was getting out of bed and doing all kinds of stuff because I, you know, started working on this album and was decided decided to do my own thing. Right. So I certainly was doing things, but I was not leaving the house. I mean, I had my daughter half time, so when I had her, I had her, and I was in full dad mode. But other than that, I didn't leave the house for the better part of two years. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'd go out to get some stuff and groceries and things like that. But I wasn't going out. I wasn't being social. I wasn't, and I had people over occasionally and I wasn't a total recluse, but I was like 90% recluse. Right. But, and when your daughter was over though, you were able to put, put on that mask, play dad yep. and, yeah. and be just fine for the most part. 
Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. As best I could. You know, I mean, certainly there are days that are easier than others. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I was able to, to do that and to focus on her and to try to, you know, continue to put the focus on her. And so to this day, you haven't worked through some of those situations, which like you said yourself, you could check off as some of the top stressors. Um, well, emotionally I have, um, you know, I've been divorced now for five years and, and there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of counseling. I, you know, changed medications several months ago. You know, I went through, uh, you know, a three week, actually longer than three weeks, a little over three week, uh, another intensive group therapy program, which was extremely beneficial. Um, would highly recommend them, you know, provided they're, you know, good, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So you're definitely well. getting, working at getting healthy. Yeah, exactly. I'm not speaking from someone who is completely in the clear. I'm in a, a much better space, but I'm still very much in the hole right. that took a long time to dig. Mm-hmm. And I'm in that sort of growth period and looking to, to get out of that hole and to, to rebuild things. But and, yeah, and so a lot you, of that stuff is I'm in a much better space than I was a couple years ago. But when you say you're still in the hole, are you talking like uh, mental health wise, like you still know you're no. in the midst of depression or are you feeling pretty decent as far as depression goes? No, I'm feeling pretty decent as far as depression goes. Um, anxiety has kind of always been my bane, <laughs> right. the bane of my existence. Yeah. It's, it's sort of the unknown, which tends to spike, which I need to, to moderate. And, you know, I've been working with the psychiatrist now to find the right balance of meds to, to, to deal with the depressive stuff you know, that, that dark hole. Yeah. And then, you know, to be able to, to bring down some of the depressive or the anxiety symptoms, right. you know, just, you know, restlessness and, uh, inability to concentrate or just fidgetiness, things like that. Yeah. I think it's great that, uh, I mean, a large piece of your story involves, working with a psychiatrist on adjusting the meds and so forth. And you didn't give up on them right away because of a bad first experience, but you wanted to tweak them and try them and work with a a psychiatrist on them. So I commend you on that. I think that's great. Tell us more about the music. I do want to say you've got some uh, videos out there and I listen to your music. I've always been an acoustic fan, so I, I love your music. Tell us what you're doing music wise and professionally around the music. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when this started happening, the album that I I decided that I was going to, you know, kind of put together uh, a lot of the music that I have um, that I was writing and working on up to that point. So I started focusing on I put out an album called Karmic Clutter. It's on iTunes and Amazon and Spotify. And I think if you were to Google Karmic Clutter or Michael J. Nana, it would pop up. Awesome. I'll put a link on the show notes as well. Yeah, great. I'd appreciate that. And then I, you know, I, I'm still, you know, I'm a one man show right now. I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing everything myself. I'm recording. I do my own engineering and producing and I'm, you know, I write all the stuff and I'm playing all the instruments and on the stuff I'm working on an acoustic version of the album that I put out along with several new songs that I've recently written called uh, acoustic karma, the blue room sessions, which will probably be out hopefully by the fall. Wow. That is really cool. Yeah. So I'm trying to stay, you know, musically busy. I started, you know, I got a YouTube page. It's just youtube.com. I think it's the forward slash C forward slash slash Michael J. Nana. Um, and I have a, you know, I'm on, um, Instagram and Facebook and of course Twitter, which I wasn't on, uh, other than Facebook a couple of years ago, because now I'm in this space where, okay, I have this music and I'm saying I'm going to do this, but it's not like someone's going to come beating down my door. 
right? Say, hey, do you have any music? You have to get it out there. And, yeah, you got to um, do that marketing piece, huh? Yeah, and that's that's been my weakness. I, I've never it's never been my strong suit of trying to promote. I'm, I'm much I'm just not comfortable with it for whatever reason. Uh, I'm learning to be more comfortable because I have to. Right. Um, but yeah, so that's what I focused on. And, and you, know, you know, I just want to put it out there that I, I can tell you're clearly a very creative guy. And when you're putting that marketing out there, just to try to have fun with it, you know, little video clips and things like that, that hopefully yep. you enjoy putting together. So it's not miserable work and marketing as this kind of negative job piece that you have to incorporate, but make it artistic and fun. Yeah. As much and I, as you know, I do, I do the best I can. I mean, I, I definitely could use some help in that regards because, you know, I'm also still at times, you know, the focus of this, this podcast, I'm still battling my brain to right. a certain degree at times, you know? So, you know, it's not like I wake up and have a list of 50 things I have to do and I just start pounding them you know, out of the way and making videos. A lot of times it's like, okay, well, how am I feeling today? And I have to make sure that I maintain my a certain level of self-care so that I can maintain this optimal space to get done the things that I need to get done. Do you struggle so, with self-confidence? Like, are you always beating yourself up that you're not good enough? Yeah, I think I've always suffered with that. And have you done any CBT through counseling, the cognitive behavioral therapy? Because that focuses a lot on stopping those negative thoughts. Yep. I, yeah. I've, you know, I definitely have, I've definitely taken an active approach in my healing, Great. I guess. You know, I mean, I, I, I still struggle. Um, and it's, it's been very difficult. There's been very difficult periods of time. But, you know, I, I try to, to, you know, do everything that I, if I'm going to do something, you know, I, I look back when I started thinking about this change in the law enforcement was starting to do some like training with handguns and stuff. I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to carry this and have to have this responsibility, then I want to definitely know what I'm doing. And I want to go above and beyond to make sure that I'm comfortable and, and doing everything I can to be as safe as I can be. Right. And I have that same approach to this. Now, not all the time. I mean, I hit walls and I fall into holes sometimes. But overall, you know, I, I, I want to be there for my daughter too. You know, I want to, to find redemption and to, to look back and, and, you know, one of the reasons why I came out with my own struggles with depression and anxiety as I have over the last couple of years is that if not me, then who, right? Because, you know, here I am, I'm a little older. I've been around the block a little bit. I have a lot of education. I have a diverse professional background I have the, you know, the language skills and abilities to articulate thoughts and to put things down. And, you know, if I'm not going to share and come out about it, then who is? Because, you know, there's a lot of people that don't have, that are not, if you're missing one thing, right? I mean, picture someone who's 17 and, you know, uh, maybe female or whatever and struggling with, with different issues, I mean, they don't, they may not have the same skill set to come out and say, you know, and they have other social pressures that they have to worry about. Right. You know, skill set and education level and your background in psychology yeah. even has helped you. And you're right. And the, the depression, the anxiety, the, these things hit everybody and anybody. Yeah. And that's, yeah. you know, one of the questions that's, that's come up with, you know, the whole law enforcement thing. Um, you know, I immediately dismiss kind of out of hand because if you think there aren't police that are out there working right now who aren't suffering from anxiety and depression, I mean, you're nuts. They are. Oh, and, yeah. Absolutely. And, 
and probably at higher levels uh, because, you know, the stress is real. And maybe if you have a different psychological temperament, those things that didn't stress me out because I'm already in a heightened space of stress right, right. does stress do stress other people out and manifest as PTSD and other things. So that's an interesting perspective. You're already at the anxiety level. So, uh, so yeah, those guys you who know, come in with no anxiety who are at risk. Um, but yeah, and, and the suicide rate of police officers continues to go up as well. Yep. Yep. And there is a, a profession along with many professions. I don't want to just, you know, point the finger at law enforcement, but they're certainly guiltier than some is that it's time we have a real discussion about this, yeah. you know, and start taking care of themselves, start taking care of themselves and yeah. interact and integrate more with the community and right. less of this separation stuff. But that's a oh, whole yeah. other, that's a whole other hole. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, again, I love the music uh, that you're doing and so forth. Tell us about Orange Room Media. So Orange Room Media is a, uh, a small S-Corp. If you don't know what an S-Corp is, I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> it's an accounting term, but it's a little corporation. And, you know, the goal of it at first was simply to promote my own stuff, to use it as a publishing arm for, you know, like I released an album on iTunes and Amazon and everything myself, and which doesn't mean I'm a millionaire all of a sudden. I need to sell them. So <laughs> if you're so inclined, go right. check them out. Um, Absolutely. People should <clears throat> give it a listen. Um, but it was the publishing arm of, and then it's kind of morphed into, well, okay, well maybe since music has been such a huge part of my life and such a huge part of my therapeutic process long before I was, you know, I saw my first psychologist or psychiatrist or even dealt with any of this stuff with someone else, you know, music was always there and it's extremely powerful. And I thought, well, a lot of artists, suffer with these issues like other people. And, you know, given the diversity of my background, I thought, well, maybe this would be a good space to promote my music and to provide some kind of outreach about, you know, you know, to the mental health community as an advocate. I'm not sure how that's going to manifest, but ideally I see it as, you know, kind of being the overarching theme of mental well-being and mental wellness through music Got and it. through the arts. Um, now how that's going to manifest or how that plays out and whether it's reaching out to other artists and, uh, in addition, you know, to my own stuff and highlighting um, content that deals with mental health and mental health issues, because a lot of my songs do deal with my own struggles. And, you know, if you listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics, I think for some of the songs, it's it's it should be quite obvious. I uh, think, it was quite obvious know. when I listened. I, I love yeah. the songs and it was quite obvious that uh, they related to you and your mental health. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, uh, before we wrap up, uh, I want to ask you if you have any uh, suggestions or pieces of advice for anybody who may be struggling right now and listening to the show. Oh, man. You know, I always try to avoid giving just simple advice because I know it's such a complex thing. And if you're out there suffering right now and you're in the hole, you know, sometimes the last thing you want to hear are platitudes. But, you know, I think the most important thing is that, you know, I ultimately reached out to a few family members, uh, my dad, my brother, my stepsister, who have been an integral part of my improvement over the last couple of years. And I would just say that you have to reach out. You have to have people that are in your corner that are willing to help advocate. And you may have to educate them while they are, you're training them to advocate on your behalf and to listen and help. And I, I think that's very important just to not, not go through this alone because it's just, it's, it's, 
it's isolating enough. Depression and anxiety are isolating enough to not, you know, to, to, to go through them and try to power through them alone. Yeah, I love that piece of advice. Reach out for help. Let people know. And it reminds me of what you said earlier. Like you assumed they already knew and they really didn't it, until you opened yep. up and shared with them. And then all you got, it sounds like, was care and love from them. Yeah, yeah. And and I was surprised. I'm like, really? You guys don't know this yet? You don't. Really? You know, so it was. I was just kind of dumbfounded. Like I've been dealing with this my whole life, and we've talked about it before, but you didn't realize that this was really what it is. You know. So. Right. Cool. Well, and that's a piece, like you said, uh, of helping educate them maybe as well, so that they do understand what you're really going through. Oh. Yeah. Great piece of so. advice, Michael. I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I want to thank you for the work you're doing and putting together your music and Orange Room Media and and kind of having a mental health spin on it. I think that's fantastic, and I'm looking forward to see uh, what comes of it. Thanks. I yeah. appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, and make sure you stay healthy. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.